0: Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks, Assistant Director at the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi. And child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Al Atkins. Hi, Al. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about sex therapy, and to do that, we're honored to have join us Nina Herreras. Nina is a licensed marriage and family therapist, director of the UCR's women's resource center she previously served as core faculty in the ucr family medicine residency program and has taught graduate level courses in sex therapy couples therapy and cultural diversity nina also maintains a private practice in which she specializes in sex therapy couples therapy and psychotherapy with the lgbtq plus population and our fun fact is her dog adopted during the pandemic recently adopted her parents (laughs) nina Thanks for joining us on this episode. Of Let's get psyched!
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: No, that, that sounds actually kind of sad. We're kind of starting the show on a kind of sad <laughs>
1: note.
0: Uh, but thanks, thank you for being with us on this episode.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Sex research can be a lonely field within academic medicine. Certainly, um, sex stigma is scary. And some of the issues that you speak on can be even scarier. Yet these issues are of crucial importance uh, to our well-being when they go well. And when they don't go well, they can be enormous causes of shame and suffering. Um so, Miss Ruedas, I want to thank you for doing what you do, but also for for coming on our show. Um what kind of caused you to go into practicing sex therapy?
1: Sure. Uh, That's a great question. A lot of people are always curious about that. Um, And I don't think, you know, talking about sex is so much scary, but it can intimidate a lot of people. Um, I think I realized very early on that I was surrounded by people who had questions about sex and some of them didn't really know where to go for answers. And I remember being very young, going to Barnes and Noble's kind of Plopping myself in front of that section, that human sexuality section that used to be like right next to the religion section, and mm-hmm. just like kind of reading all sorts of different books. And I loved it. And I was very comfortable learning all of these things, and they were intriguing. And I was reading stuff that was very relevant to what was going on in my life and, uh, you know, what was going on in everybody else's life, and according to my peers. And I loved learning all these things and going back to my peers and giving them answers. So I realized early on that I can be a great source of information uh, for people. Um, They had questions and I can find these answers for all of us. And around this time, too, Loveline was really popular back in the days. So people love talking about love and sex in the evening. And it was kind of like late at night. So, um, you know, it felt a little like kind of taboo and wrong, but they can talk about all like the important stuff that nobody else was talking about. Uh, so, yeah, that really inspired me. I wanted to continue talking about sex. And I thought, I, yeah, I can be a sex therapist. I love listening, I love talking, and we can do this together. So, yeah.
3: Nice. Um, I want to ask Nina, why do you think it's important to talk about sex and mental health care?
1: Uh, because it impacts so many different parts of our life, uh, it impacts our relationship our uh, um you know the way that we look at ourselves our identity our gender um yeah it it, it you know it, it, our attractions um and so few people want to talk about it so when you find a therapist or a healthcare provider who is willing to open those conversations that are very that can be very uncomfortable i think it's just magical Um, when you can find a provider who is willing to talk about the topics that everybody else is wanting to avoid.
3: Yeah. So comfort level plays a big part in Mm -hmm. success in sex therapy. And what about self-awareness and bias? Can you talk a little bit about the role that plays? Sure. Um, I
1: I also think about like the bias. Well, you know, it's also, it's about finding your own level of comfort with the topics, um, so when I talk to my students, I kind of I give them permission to use the language that they're comfortable with., uh, but the goal is to also use the the clients or the patient's language as well as much as possible, but understanding your boundaries and what works for you. But so it's about understanding where you stand with all of this, but also your wherever you get your education. Um, if it's grad school or medical school or undergrad school, you know, sometimes institutions have their own agendas and are not comfortable discussing these conversations either. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of things to consider. Um, yeah, but
3: oh. I'm wondering like, since you have taught these topics at a graduate school level, mm-hmm. what sort of discussions around curriculum have you had? Do you, I'm kind of pushback is there?
1: Uh, plenty. So uh, even just looking at some of the the topics that we're supposed to cover and the order, um, the, it's unfortunate that some places, um, you, you, there are institutions that may, um, it, I guess I'm kind of mistru- I'm struggling to figure out how to say this. That mm-hmm. I think there are places with great intentions, but sure. if we're not understanding kind of our own biases and, um. We can go ahead and teach this material in ways that's going to perpetuate myths and misconceptions and lead to, yeah, people training in ways that is not going to empower them to learn more about themselves or relationships or sexuality, or and will prevent them from helping their future patients and clients. So it's kind of hard. It's it's really difficult. I wish that more places talked about human sexuality.
3: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we were talking before the show, Al and I were talking before the show, just about how um uh how rare it is to see a sex therapist as a faculty member. Um I imagine like funding research, oh sure faculty positions, like what mm-hmm. what can you tell us a little bit, like talk talk a little, give us a little behind the scenes look of you know, sex therapy and academic. Uh, arenas. Sure.
1: I think that uh, some institutions are afraid to fund research because they're afraid that, you know, people are going to touch really sensitive and touchy topics that might yeah. get attention and that type of attention that an institution doesn't want. Um, because not everybody is on the same page when it comes to sexual values and morals. It can be really hard to touch on some topics when other people have conflicting ideas. Um, and people are, you know, there are a lot of people who are more comfortable having sex than talking about sex. Um, so when people are, uh, you know, avoiding these topics in their own home, they might avoid these topics when teaching them too.
2: Mm-hmm. I wonder if there are more, are people who are, uh, more comfortable talking about sex than having sex. I feel like that would be the, mm-hmm. the, the, minority.
1: <laughs>
2: um, yeah. <laughs> so. so these misconceptions that exist, um are there kind of like ones that you feel are the most destructive or uh the, the highest most widespread? On the
1: list? Yeah. Well, I think it's unfortunate. You know, I think there are yeah, a lot of misconceptions about gender and sex, or even what a typical couple looks like, or even what sex typically looks looks like. So I usually when working with family medicine residents and I've done this presentation at a variety of residency programs, I'll ask, um, the audience to go ahead and share their definition of sexual activity. And so, you know, I have an audience of full of family medicine residents. They'll give me their definitions. And even the people in the audience have different definitions. Physicians have different definitions. Um, so if they, have different definitions when comparing it with each other, then it's likely that they're going to have different definitions when comparing it to their patient's definition or even their partner's definition. So I do that with couples all the time. I'll have them write their own definitions and they'll have different definitions and different, yeah, um, objectives and different reasons to have sex. It's always kind of fun talking to couples about that too.
0: How much of uh, sex therapy turns out to be really couples therapy and marital therapy?
1: A lot. Sometimes it's just about communication. So one common question is people like coming to my office and saying, Oh, I want more intimacy. I'm like, spell that out. What does intimacy look like for you? And one person can, you know, say, I give you intimacy. I bought you flowers. And they're thinking like, no, 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 no. I really just needed you to hug me after that really hard day at work. And, you know, they, they're just not on the same page. So a lot of times I'm feel like I'm there to help translate. Most times couples want the same thing. They're just not speaking the same language. Um, and then that kind of, you know, when it comes to sex, maybe they've been avoiding the conversation and I help them have that yes, conversation and make it a really safe space too. Um, so yeah, sometimes couples will feel more safe and comfortable having, talking about sex in my office than alone at home.
3: Do you feel like problems that couples have in that they bring up in couples therapy or that you are working on in couples therapy mirror a lot of the bedroom problems that they're having.
1: Not necessarily. Um, you know, I, I think that when it comes, I'm thinking about like power dynamics. So couples can have certain power dynamics, but when they get into the bedroom, they might have different power dynamics and different desires. So maybe somebody is very dominant at work, very dominant at home and makes a decision about the bills, but they like to be very submissive in bed because that's where they can like let go and enjoy themselves in a very different way.
3: So hmm. not always. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, I know that you were going to talk to us a little bit about some more... Um, assumptions or misconceptions, especially from like a heteronormative perspective.
1: I think this kind of goes back to what I tried touching on earlier with um, people have certain ideas of what sex is supposed to look like. So they imagine that, you know, there has to be foreplay, there has to be love. And I think a lot of it is based on the fact that your maybe average therapist is heterosexual and making assumptions that all couples they're working with or all people are probably heterosexual uh, when it, that's not the case at all. And a lot of the training focuses on heterosexual couples and heteronormative ideas. And, and the same thing comes, you know, I think a lot of people assume it's getting better. Um, I think I've seen a lot of changes in like the 10 years, I think I've been teaching grad classes for like eight years. So I've seen a lot of positive changes. Uh, but it was very um, heteronormative, like it, it had that spin on it all the time, too.
3: And can you go into some of the consequences of having that, those assumptions?
1: Sure, I think about like, typical literature that, you know, a therapist is very familiar with, and maybe they're very likely to recommend to their client. And if that book was written primarily for a heterosexual couple and the couple that you're working with is, let's just say, a, you know, two gay men, uh, they might not feel like they can relate to the material and then they might feel as though the therapist doesn't really see them or understand their unique needs. Um, so it can actually cause, um, a, it can be a barrier to care and um, the the clients or the patients might feel less safe with their therapist, or, and less seen by them too.
2: Yeah, that that heteronormativity feels so so important here. Um, so much of sex is culture bound, and the the and and there are so many different sex cultures in, in the U.S. in the world, and and I think we kind of pretend like there's really just one or, or that the, the kind of one that is the most common and that is far more common than it actually is?
1: Yeah. So I think about, you know, there was this big wave of kind of people talking about sex addiction for a long time. Um. And so if you think about somebody who is like really into, let's say bondage, you know, if they went to one therapist, one therapist who is maybe kink and sex friendly and knowledgeable might say, okay, you're into bondage. Are you, you know, doing it safely? What kind of role does it play in your relationships? Da, da, da. We could totally talk about that all day. But another therapist might say like, Ooh, you're a sex addict. And this sounds very unhealthy and you have other issues and maybe you were um, sexually abused as a child. And a lot of assumptions can be made from, you know, the start.
2: So, so what's your opinion on, on sex addiction?
1: Uh, you know, I can't help but go back to, um, just, you know, your typical definitions of sex. I'm thinking about like withdrawal, you're not going to have any withdrawal symptoms. Um, so I think there's compulsive behavior, but I wouldn't necessarily call it addiction. And and
2: do you extend that, that it sounds like you don't necessarily believe in sex addiction as a diagnosis. Is that right?
1: Sex addiction is not a diagnosis. It's nowhere in the DSM. Sure.
2: Yeah, it's not in DSM. Although so <laughs> although not not all use DSM as their their Bible, right? And and I guess I say that partly because I want to come to asking you what you believe about. I mean, DSM hasn't really gone very far on electronic addictions, including porn not addiction. Yet.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yet.
2: It, I would say I would agree with that statement, not yet. Yet you know, there are quite a few um reasons to believe that like including just overall kind of scoping data on the world's online usage and and what things are top are the top used online things in the world that porn addiction is a real hugely widespread problem uh
1: what makes it problematic
2: well i would rather ask than tell i mean i mean i think uh my own uneducated opinion on it is that there seems to be similar to other electronic media some potential rewiring of like uh, reward systems and uh, uh maybe a a replacement of some more healthy interactions um and and also just that a huge okay. percentage of What's the definition has been... of
1: healthy interactions when it comes to sex?
2: Yeah, maybe I'm showing bias in terms of like favoring inhuman uh, interactions, but but I do want to also say the the last piece of that, which is that a huge percentage of the porn that I think was being watched in the last uh, certain amount of time on Pornhub was found to be human trafficking porn.
1: Yeah, I think you know I think a lot of people are going to free sources of porn, and if people actually paid money for porn and saw some quality stuff, like you know, there's Erica Lust. Um, who does some really great quality stuff, you know, maybe we would be watching other things. Um, I I think, you know, that's actually my role when it comes to therapy. I love asking questions uh, because I do think that a lot of us kind of make assumptions about like what healthy sexuality is and what we should be doing and what role does, you know, do we think that porn plays in relationships? Uh, But we really can't make very many assumptions when it comes to sex.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're here with Nina Herreras of we're talking about sex therapy. Nina, um, I want to ask you, what are what is your bread and butter? What are some of the most common issues that you address in sex therapy? And then maybe you could a little bit walk us through like how how what your approach is.
1: Oh, sure. Um, I think one of my favorite things to do with clients. And a lot of clients kind of come in with this is like, you know, feeling guilt or doubt about themselves and their identities and their desires um, because of societal pressures and cultural influences, maybe even things that they've learned from their religion and their peers and media that don't necessarily fit their life or their wishes or desires or relationship. Um, And so it's about exploring that and figuring out what it means for them and trying to figure out a sex life and a relationship that's going to work well for them. Um, And so, yeah, it's giving them permission to think outside the box and really, you know, practice some self-acceptance and, you know, not feel bad or guilty for who they are and, you know, what they want to.
3: So Nina, um, my question for you is when do we as, you know, psychiatrists, therapists, when do, when should we think to refer to a sex therapist?
1: Uh, when sex comes up and you're uncomfortable talking about this the, the topic. Okay. Um, <laughs> so if sex comes up and you're like, nope, just not there. Uh, this is not for me. And you feel yourself avoiding the topic. Then I would say that's a perfect time to go ahead and refer out. I was always taught to leave my um yeah, to lead without assumptions, to, you know, uh, lead without judgments. And once I feel like those are getting in the way, then maybe I'm not the best person for that job.
3: I think that makes so much sense because if you feel uncomfortable as the provider and it it's something they really need to discuss, you could do a lot of damage by messing up uh be because it's not your area of expertise. Mm-hmm.
1: I've had people um, refer to me and try to I've had clients who want to try to do adjunct work. But because things are never only about sex, it's really hard to do that. Because then it, you know, then we start talking about their relationships and their values and Hmm. their desires and their identity. And sex always overlaps with so much more.
3: Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the plicit model?
1: Sure. So the plicit model is kind of something you usually learn very early on when um, trying to learn about sex therapy. Um, So it stands for permission, limited information, specific suggestions, and intensive therapy. So you always want to start by giving the patient permission to raise sexual issues. So allow them, invite them to go ahead and bring these things up. And you can even do those, maybe it's in your paperwork. Um, So you ask very early on, uh, if they have any challenges with their sex life or what that looks like for them, or if it's a couple and they come into your office and you, you can ask them, um, in the middle of couples therapy, if it feels relevant, you know, how is the sex life going to, so it kind of invites them to start those topics. Limited information would be to, you know, just give the patient a little bit of information, let them know about sexual side effects of treatments and things like that. Uh, Then you would move into specific suggestions. That's when, when you start giving them ideas of maybe uh, um, things that they can try out. Um, And then if that doesn't work, then you move into intensive therapy. Um, So that would look more like psychological interventions, sex therapy, and all sorts of different things. So sometimes um, therapists and providers who are more uh, who are comfortable having these conversations, but when they've tried a couple of different tactics, then maybe they move on to somebody like me who specializes in sex therapy.
3: Got it.
2: I missed, I missed some of the, the plicit, Um Can we, can we go through that in just a little bit more detail?
1: Sure. So it'd be starting off with permission. So giving the patient permission to even talk about the subject, limited information, just kind of talking to them about a couple of basic facts, but not getting too detailed. Then if that doesn't work, giving them specific suggestions. So maybe you kind of, you know, talk about different things that they can try. And if that doesn't work, then maybe you need more intensive therapy. And then you would go into either talking about, you know, doing more sex therapy or referring to a specialist who has more practice in that area.
2: Thank you. That's helpful. Tosh, sorry. I, I saw, I, I jumped in when you were ready to talk.
3: That's okay. Um, my follow-up question to that is, um, are there different types of sex therapists and what, what are the different types?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I think you, it's helpful to kind of understand if you are a patient looking for a sex therapist, um, what are your goals? What are your values to make sure that they align with you? So there is something called ASECT. So that's the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And um, they can certify sex therapists. Um, And yeah, there are tons of sex therapists out there. They can all be certified by this organization, but they can have different specialties. So maybe somebody also um, is a very religious sex therapist and somebody else is king friendly. And, you know, so it's also about understanding what your needs are, you know, not every sex therapist is going to you know about, um, non-monogamy. Um, so maybe if you want you and your partner want to open the relationship, you know, you're going to have to look for somebody who also has that particular, um, knowledge and maybe some experience in that too.
2: There's seems there's an increasing percentage of folks who are non-monogamous. If, if, if like, let's say I, as a provider, don't know what to say to a couple who is doing that, what would be like some basics, ABC that one could, um, that one could kind of have uh, in their closet?
1: So I think, you know, it comes back to like a sex history. So are you sexually active? how many partners do you have like we can't assume that the person if we know their partner or if they've mentioned a partner before we can't assume that's their only partner that's our only sexual partner so um i think the best way to move into it is not to make assumptions and just to ask all questions
0: when um couples come in and there's a disagreement about frequency and type of sex can you give, can you walk us through like what would be your assessment? What would be your the way that you go about managing that?
1: I think that's really common. Um, I kind of love how Dan Savage kind of approaches this: that just because you match with a partner on all these different wonderful ways, doesn't necessarily get, mean that you're going to match sexually. And, you know, giving permission, people permission to kind of talk freely about what they want, what their expectations are, and to have honest conversations so they could make educated decisions and they can negotiate or they can find alternatives together. So there's some couples like one partner wants to have sex once a month and the other one that wants to have sex seven times a week, you know, like how do they meet in the middle and what kind of sacrifices or, you know, how, who's compromising what. Um, or do they have to think outside the box, you know, like that partner who wants to have sex seven times a week, like, you know, maybe we should open this relationship because that would take, you know, some weight off of my shoulders and you can have sex with other partners and we can just have sex once a month. You know, like maybe it's about negotiating something that's going to work for that particular couple.
0: Now, is that something that uh, when you're laying out different kinds of suggestions and things like that, would that be one of them?
1: Oh, sure. I give them all the options I can think of. And I, they have permission to say like, no, Nina, that's way off. Um, But that helps us like rule out something that's not going to work for them. So I think that's part of the process too. And, you know, it could be that like, even if I did kind of mention non-monogamy, if they say that doesn't work out, that might help them be more motivated to find a solution that will work for them. And so, the same thing about like sexual, like you know, different interests and kinks and stuff like that. You know, it's about trying to figure out what will work, for, what will work for that couple.
0: That seems like that's a really big part of it. Is when they come to an expert like you, their mind is opened about what's possible, what's okay, what's not okay, what, where things might go, and that kind of thing. That must must be a an important component.
1: It's a real honor to do this work and have those conversations with people that they're not having with anybody else. And a lot of people have silenced these conversations or avoided these conversations. And I give them permission to like talk about anything that comes up.
0: Could you say a little bit more um about training and preparation and what that might involve and what that would look like? Education? Yeah.
1: You know, um, sometimes it's about challenging ourselves and really thinking about what we value and letting that go and exploring other lifestyles and um You know, if it's not like you exploring it yourself, like maybe you're never going to be non-monogamous, but like have friends who are in those type of relationships so you can learn about their experience and let go of some of the assumptions that maybe you've been holding on to for years. Um, So yeah, just kind of exposing yourself to new and different things and thinking outside the box. It's fun, but it can be intimidating too.
0: And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked with Nina Rudas. About sex therapy. Nina, thank you for joining us for this episode. Thanks so much. And thank you also to our co host Toshi amaguchi Al Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions to the show, you can write us on Get Psyched on kcr at gmail.com. You can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us, post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Yasmin Dakama. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.